1: Across the world, shops are putting the shutters up and people are being urged to stay at home. Global commerce is winding down as governments step up efforts to slow the spread of the deadly new coronavirus. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, as governments curb their citizens' activities... Corporate casualties are mounting.
2: There is another scenario that envisions a much longer period of downturn, decline, if the virus proves to be nastier. And that's what business is particularly worried about.
1: And a peek inside America's pandemic-era pantry shows the scale of the challenge facing one of the country's core industries, dairy.
0: It's a combination. Economic conditions cost of labour, the cost to do business has only gone up. Everything has increased.
1: Plus, can global trade weather the current storm?
3: The data that we do have suggests that this is a very severe shock.
1: Despite efforts to curb the spread of COVID 19, the disease continues to wreak havoc. As the number of deaths surges, governments have ordered people to stay in their houses. Online videos have surfaced of Italian mayors in the streets shouting at residents to go back to their homes. In Britain and elsewhere, gatherings of more than two people have been banned, non essential shops shut, and everybody told to work from home if they can. Britain is a couple of weeks behind Italy, which has been in lockdown since March 9th and which suffered a shocking weekend where more than 1,400 people died. Around the world, the number of corporate casualties is also mounting. We so
3: saw, essentially, Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte saying that it's necessary to put in more intensified measures on the
0: lockdown. Governor Sisolak listed non-essential businesses such as things like beauty shops, barber shops, nail salons, waxing salons, and more. We will immediately close all shops selling non-essential goods, including
2: clothing and electronic
0: stores, and. Other premises.
2: Fewer people are taking planes, hailing rides, eating out, staying in hotels, going to cinemas, or, or just about gathering anywhere.
1: Vijay Vatswarayan is the Economist U.S. business editor.
2: But the pandemic is grinding a lot of global commerce to a halt.
1: Obviously, business is in a tailspin at the moment. But just how serious is the
2: damage? So uh, I'm afraid the only question now is whether this recession, and we are in a recession is going to be short and sharp or long and sharp. There are no good options at this point, uh, given the way that the virus and the response to it is unfolding. The short and sharp version might see something like what we've seen in China so far, that is within a couple of quarters that we're able to manage this problem in Western economies in developing countries where it hasn't hit yet. But unfortunately, there is another scenario that uh, envisions a much longer period, maybe a year or more. Of downturn, decline, if the virus proves to be nastier or if it evolves, and that's what business is particularly worried about.
1: And within that, VJ, is it possible to single out which industries are, are worst hit?
2: There's no question that uh, industries that need us to travel, to congregate, to enjoy ourselves uh, and be social, are the ones that have been hit the most, most rapidly. Hotels, for example, in New York are expected to be two thirds empty until the end of June. Airbnb bookings have fallen. Dramatically. Bars, restaurants and other places where people gather have been shut in a number of areas. In other places, it's because people don't want to go out and don't want to take a risk of getting the virus. There's another category of company that has been hurt and that is energy companies, because they were clobbered by a double whammy. Not only has there been a decline in demand because people aren't driving very much these days and therefore not using petrol for their vehicles, but we have an oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia going on that has dropped the price of crude to below $25 a barrel, which is the lowest level in nearly two decades. And so that is uh, creating huge financial stress for energy companies.
1: Is there anything any of these companies can do about this? I mean, it's like a, a, it's an act of God, really, isn't it? There's little they can do to mitigate the damage.
2: For many companies, particularly those reliant on uh, consumer confidence and, again, people gathering in public places, it's very hard. A number of companies are simply going to go bust for example, in the restaurant sector, arts organizations. In countries where they have a lot of state funding, like France or in uh, Dubai, they may do fine. But in Britain, for example, where there's been a shift in how arts are funded increasingly to uh, private sector models or other forms of uh, support, they're going to be hit very, very badly. And many workers in these industries are gig workers. They don't have long-term contracts. And so they don't even have something like sick pay or other forms of support to fall back on unless the government steps in aggressively. And that's what we're actually seeing many governments around the world do now is to step in with uh, very aggressive and quite necessary packages to try to help, help their workers to try to retain those jobs, to try to keep companies viable in the hope that the few months, let's hope, that it takes to get through this crisis will allow the companies to come back and flourish another time in the future.
1: Indeed, here in in this country, in Britain, we're seeing the government step in actually to pay the wages of some people who will be furloughed, as they're calling it, what we used to call laid off. How typical is that? And how close is America to getting its own scheme in place?
2: So there are different flavors of support in America. There's a payroll tax holiday that's being contemplated. But in addition, There is a a proposal to send uh, checks directly to every American, or at least most Americans, uh, money in your pocket. Within two weeks, it was promised from the White House. So uh, there is serious amount of money that uh, Congress is working on that the White House has proposed. And so I think there is, uh, we are going to see significant funds for American business, and hopefully for uh, individuals as well. Uh, Simply saving businesses through means like delaying, taxes or giving tax holidays will not necessarily save jobs. And I think the focus at this point has to be also on getting cash to the pockets of consumers who may not be able to make their rent payment, for example.
1: I suppose in any crisis, Vijay, there are some firms that actually do well out of it. Who are they in this case? I, I was at my local supermarket this morning, so I'd be inclined to suggest toilet paper manufacturers. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, you're you're right. Uh, the bizarre fascination with toilet paper continues, but not only that, but cleaning products like Clorox or Purell and other kind of disinfecting products. Uh, makers of these, 3M, which is an American company that makes uh, high quality masks, uh, which are also uh, a subject of uh, stockpiling or hoarding. These companies are, are of course doing well, but this may be a short term kind of frenzy. What are you going to do with uh, you know a years worth of toilet paper or a thousand masks after the COVID? Crisis passes. So, we may want to look at somewhere else to see what might be the longer term uh, impact in terms of winners. We're working from home at a pace that really is unprecedented uh, across many economies, and that's giving a boom to technologies that enable working from home in a, a productive way. Companies like Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Slack. Uh, WeChat Work, which is a product uh, from uh, Tencent in China, have all done extremely well with numbers of downloads increasing multiple fold in the last few months. And more than that, as people must use it, they have no choice now. This may become a permanent way of life and represent a much broader shift. That could have bigger implications going forward. There may be uh, less business travel, for example, or fewer conferences. We've seen a number of corporate gatherings canceled. People may decide that maybe we don't need those conferences but instead channel their money to other forms of um, uh, online gatherings. Drug companies that come up with vaccines, of course, would also experience a boom uh, from this crisis.
1: So do you think we're talking here about a permanent change in the way the world does business, which is going to affect presumably every company that's, that survives the downturn?
2: I think it's overstating the case to say that this changes everything. It feels like it right now because this is unprecedented. We've never had so many people have their normal life disrupted. But we do know that this is not the first pandemic. And we don't have to go back to the Spanish flu of 1918 to see that there have been other recent pandemics. The world dealt with SARS, for example, in 2003. We had a swine flu outbreak, H1N1, avian flu. So we've had waves of these zoonoses that are passing from animals into humans and creating potential lethal pandemics. In this case, the coronavirus appears to be significantly more lethal than the previous pandemics we've had of late. But in future, there may be others, right? So we may just have to be ready for a world in which we're more flexible, more resilient, for example, in our supply chains, which have been greatly disrupted by uh, the problems in China. We may need to be more nimble in how we work. And governments certainly need to be more proactive in their surveillance and preparation. But do we think that this is the end of capitalism as we know it? I don't think so. I think the ways we work will change. Maybe some trends that were already beginning to happen maybe accelerated. To give an example, Hollywood uh, resisted the online trend that had been pioneered by Netflix of streaming movies. They still insisted, the big studios, on putting out their big releases uh, at the cinema. And that has just changed. A couple of the key studios have started to release their big blockbusters online Universal is one of them, and and Disney looks like it's going to follow as well. And that's a big change in how Hollywood is thinking. If they go online first rather than simply expecting you to go to the cinema, that could have an important implication in accelerating a trend that was already ongoing. So I think we'll see changes like that. There is just the possibility that we might see entirely new business models emerge. Uh, The Great Depression was a horrible time for the world economy, and yet we saw several important innovations in business. Among them, for example, Avon, which is a beauty products company that pioneered a way of selling home-to-home, emerged out of that chaos. So too did uh, new business models for the entertainment and auto industry. So I think we might see that crisis also breeds innovation.
1: Vijay Vaitiswaran, thank you very much. and, And thank you for finding a modestly optimistic note on which to end.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: As nearly half of Americans prepare to spend several weeks at home, a peek inside America's pandemic pantry reveals the scale of the threat to one of the country's core industries. According to Nielsen, sales of long-life alternatives like oat milk spiked by more than 300% in the last week of February. Decades of struggle for America's dairy farmers are coming to a head. Our Midwest correspondent Adam Roberts went down on the farm to see the lengths the country's dairies are going to just to stay in business.
0: Hi, girls. These are our little babies. These are all less than four or five months old. They're all heifers, so they're all female. To walk around
4: Dan Wegmuller's farm in southern Wisconsin is to conjure up the past. His red-painted barn is crowned by an elegantly arched roof trundles around on a green John Deere tractor, and he says that each of his 50 brown Swiss cows has a name and a distinct personality.
0: That cow just on the other side, she's got a bell mm. walking up. That's Frankie. She's, um, she's the matriarch. She's one of the oldest cows in the herd. We are in Monroe, Wisconsin, Green County, USA. Green County, Wisconsin is the highest cheese-producing county in the nation. Fantastic. I am fourth generation on this farm. Uh, My dad's grandfather purchased the farm in the 1930s during the American Great Depression. So it's been in the family since then.
4: When Dan's family bought the farm, dairy was a way of life for many Americans. Back then, the number of milk-producing farms in America peaked at 3.6 million. Today, Dan's
0: farm might as well exist in a museum. Wisconsin alone lost 10% of its dairies last year. The farms... and Bless you. Um, initially, they were small farms like ours. Now, the farms that are dropping are the 200 to 300 cow farms. So those mid-range farms. In the United States,
4: there are just 37,000 dairy farms left. 7,000 of them are in Wisconsin.
0: Early 2017, I noticed that the price of milk was starting to decrease... Um, and then I noticed all of the other little sources of revenue on the farm for us, so like the, the cow cow markets, the uh, beef markets, were all sort of drying up. Mm. Um, I wasn't getting nearly as much return for these sources of revenue that I was used to. Simultaneously, all of our input costs were going up.
4: Milk prices have been sliding for decades, largely because ever better techniques, genetics and technology, ensure that there's rising supply. Despite a short surge last year, prices seem to be on their way down again. At the same time, farmers have been struggling with rising costs.
0: The biggest problem for me personally is that our, our cost of our cost of production has just gone up. It's right. gone from ten dollar break-even point to eighteen dollars. So it's the rising cost. It's a combination: economic conditions, cost of labor, the cost to do business has has only gone up. Mm. Everything has increased. There's a dairy co-op that operates on a less than a 1% margin. Then another co-op, or or even Walmart, will come in and undercut it. So they're operating on a fraction of a percent. And so they're all trying to undercut them to the point that nobody's actually making any money anymore.
4: While supply has risen, demand is dropping. Consumers are losing their taste for drinking cow's milk. Since 1975, milk consumption per person has fallen by 40% and around a third of that drop came in just the last 10 years. Add to this the competition from trendy non-dairy options like soy, almond, oat and hemp, which can survive at room temperature for months. The dairy industry has been trying to fight these young pretenders with the law.
5: We've done a lot in our industries to be able to develop a great reputation and don't feel like that's something that other products ought to take advantage of.
4: Gary Talcon is a Republican state representative in Wisconsin, where he chairs the Agriculture Committee.
5: There are some bills that we passed in the legislature that deal with real milk, meat, and dairy products so that the labeling is correct. So I think it's something that we're going to deal with, but it's starting something new and it shouldn't be labelled almond milk, it should be an almond beverage or something like that. So we have some challenges there, but I'm sure we'll overcome them.
4: But although Representative Talcon is determined not to give up the fight in the legislature, he's realistic that for smaller farmers especially, the chances of making a living from milking alone have almost disappeared. His family runs a herd of 1,200 cows on their 2,500-acre farm.
5: A lot of farms are looking at diversification and the advantage that can bring in generating revenue. Agricultural tourism is something that's uh, very beneficial. When it comes to prime economic drivers in the state of Wisconsin, it's agriculture, manufacturing, and tourism. Tourism is a $21.6 billion business in the state of Wisconsin, so People are looking at different alternatives, whether it's tourism, bed and breakfast, or growing industrial hemp, which we just passed the session. So there's more opportunities to be able to adjust to the evolving agricultural economy.
0: Um, Up here, this is sort of our, well, this is the master bedroom.
4: Dan Wegmuller and his wife are betting big that rustic farm stays could be better business than souring milk sales.
0: You can come out to the balcony. You can have your morning coffee or your afternoon wine and charcuterie board. Mm. The cows walk right past the house on that lane. They've got their night paddock straight out and then their day paddocks. This whole hillside is subdivided into... So
4: far, they've had visitors from both coasts and from as far afield as Ecuador and Rwanda. This
0: is the milking parlor. Yeah. These are all brand new calves, all born within the last week. One of the traditions we started when we have guests come through the house... If we have a calf born while they're here, they get to name the calf. They get to pick out a name. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, if we get into agritourism, I know it's, it's something that has already taken off on yeah. the East Coast. Um, you can go from New York, New Jersey area and never leave. You can just go from farm to farm to farm. Right, right. Um, and so we're lagging in the Midwest. We're lagging behind that. Right. Um, I think we're, we're overdue for something yeah. like that in this area.
4: As America looks to defend against the coronavirus pandemic, the dream of a Midwestern agritourism renaissance must wait. Small farmers like Mr Wegnuller must hope that once this crisis is over, urban visitors once again will be willing to pay for the experience of trudging in mud and milking a cow for a day.
1: Roberts, thank you. Not to mention the herd of cows. And you can find The Economist's full coverage of the virus at economist.com slash coronavirus. And for answers to health and science questions about COVID-19, on testing, potential vaccines, how long it survives on surfaces and so on, try our sister podcast, Babbage. Have a listen on your podcast app. We'll be right back with how COVID-19 is infecting global trade.
4: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
1: Global trade is the lifeblood of the world economy. And disruption in one part of the world can have far-reaching consequences. When consumers in one country stop buying, say, cars or smartphones... Suppliers quickly feel the pinch. In recent years, trade flows have been dampened by challenges such as the trade wars waged by the Trump administration. But now COVID-19 is an even bigger crisis for world trade.
3: Every year, around $19 trillion worth of goods and $6 trillion worth of services flow around the world. So keeping that going is pretty tricky in times like these.
1: Samir Keynes is The Economist, Trade and Globalisation Editor.
3: Right now, with the coronavirus, essentially there are shocks coming from every single different angle. Not only is there disruption to supply chains because companies can't make and then export parts and components, but also the companies demanding those parts are themselves having to shut down. And there are serious questions about how much people are going to demand. All of that means that the outlook for global trade looks great.
1: Now, Samaya, the virus, of course, first broke out in China. So it's been damaging trade for a while now, hitting the the workshop of the world. But now factories back there are opening, even Wuhan, the original centre, is getting back to normal and things seem to be moving. But of course, in the meantime, it's spread across the world. So are things getting better or worse?
3: I think the world is a big and complicated place. In some places, things are getting better as that disruption from the shutdown in Chinese manufacturing kind of works its way through. At the the peak of the disruption, there we were seeing container shortages in some places. Uh, there just wasn't enough equipment in the in the rest of the world because so many containers were stuck in China waiting to take out cargo. Uh, we were seeing factories just not not get the parts that they needed. Now we are seeing a return to normal. Factories are getting back up and running again. Some companies have taken to airlifting parts, so just flying them, uh, whereas before they would have gone by by boat, so that they can get there at the speed that they needed. Now, now elsewhere in the world, as you say, things are spreading, and so now we've got factory Europe that's basically shutting down. We've got the rest of uh, factory Asia, which is which is being affected, and and there you've got a few different issues. So first of all, you have the disruption caused by the unreliability of their supply chains and then obviously the biggest biggest problem is that as the you know the world's economies grind to a halt there are concerns about whether people are going to have the money to spend on the stuff that these factories were actually making.
1: So people aren't making stuff anymore and people the other side of the world aren't buying it that's obviously going to hit trade pretty bad but what other sorts of barriers is the crisis throwing up?
3: Yeah, so as well as these shocks to supply and the looming crash in demand, governments are doing things that actually raise barriers to trade. Just take, first of all, the travel ban that is going to crush tourism, which is a big chunk of services trade, but also more than half of the world's air freight travels in the bellies of passenger planes so all the flight cancellations essentially means that there's been a crash in the capacity of planes to carry stuff and then you have the border restrictions so the land border restrictions where there are checks at the border or in some cases just straight up no you you can't cross and finally we've seen explicit trade barriers. We've seen export restrictions on medical supplies. Very, very recently, we've seen some export restrictions on, on food. So, you know, you've, you've got countries or governments retreating and saying, no, it's, it's us on our own. We will do whatever uh, is necessary to deal with this crisis.
1: And looking at the overall picture, Samir, how much does the trade shock amplify the overall economic shock the world is suffering?
3: So the way I think of trade is that essentially it connects people making stuff in one place to people buying stuff in a different place. And so if people don't want to buy stuff, then that is going to hit people very far away. And those those shocks are going to ripple through the global economy. One thing we saw in in 2009 was that the trade collapse amid the global financial crisis, amid the Great Recession, that trade collapse was incredibly synchronised. Everywhere got hit even though the crisis really stemmed from places like the US and the EU. And so that, I think, is a worrying lesson or message for what could be coming now.
1: And are there data available yet to say how closely this shock matches that of 2009, that precipitous fall?
3: Frustratingly for my job, the aggregate trade data come out with a delay, Uh, So it's going to be a few months before we get a sense of, of how bad this is going to be. The data that we do have suggests that this is a very severe shock. Export orders are falling off a cliff. I personally don't see much to suggest that this is going to be any better than 2009. And back then, while global GDP fell by less than 1%, trade volumes fell by 11%.
1: Though they did, I suppose, recover comparatively quickly or a lot more quickly than people feared at the time. Is there a similar hope of a a V or at least U-shaped recovery from this trade slump?
3: Yeah, one of the lessons was that trade is fairly resilient. And I think a lot of people are hoping that after an initial shock, when things get back to normal, trade can bounce back. One of the contributors to the collapse in trade was that companies, instead of buying more stuff, they just use their inventories because they're uncertain about demand. So that will amplify the shock, but it isn't a a permanent hit. At some point, those companies need to restock their inventories. I think the big uncertainty in this case is just how long this is going to last. It's incredibly unclear, and therefore it's really difficult for companies to plan. I was talking to, to Nick Bloom of, of Stanford University, and he said that uncertainty metrics, measures of economic uncertainty, are higher right now than they than they were during the financial crisis. Essentially, right now it's difficult to be anything other than than fairly gloomy.
1: Samir Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Simon Long. And in London, this is The Economist.